Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 John, the book of 1 John. When's he going to preach on Christmas? Well, next week's a good time. I'm glad you all like Christmas songs. I'm, I'm just not a fan. I just, I just, just don't connect with the Christmas songs. Oh, holy night, the words are great, but I just, I'm ready. I'm ready to return to normalcy. <laughs> so this is a weird introduction to a sermon. It's not. It's just, I'm sitting there, we're singing, oh, holy night, and I think these are great lyrics, but I'm just ready. I'm done with Christmas. And you know, we can take the Christmas tree down too. That's, you know. How could he say that about Christmas? Show me in the Bible where it says we're supposed to celebrate. Yes. Wow, there's a window into my soul, isn't it? Uh, I thought it was interesting, though, in a Holy, a Holy Night, I looked it up when it was written because it talks about our, the slave being our brother and all oppression ceasing. And uh, John and I had a discussion uh, last week talking about slavery in the Bible and how so many people use the Bible to justify slavery. And we talked a little bit about that and just how uh, the, the, the dominoes were kind of set up in motion when Christ came when Christianity came on the scene, although slavery wasn't eliminated uh, immediately, everything was in place for the destruction of slavery eventually as slave and master became brothers. And we get to see it a little bit when you read the book of Philemon and so on. So everything was in place to destroy slavery. Actually, there's a sermon on YouTube that uh, we dealt with a uh, year or so ago called How Jesus Destroyed Slavery. Uh, but anyway, it was interesting to see that in the lyric in that song, which was written in about 1843 is what I think think it was. So why are we talking about that? I have no idea. Uh, but that came to mind when we were singing Oh Holy Night. So First uh, John, let's do that. For the last few weeks, we've embarked on a series dealing with the questions raised by the existence of false converts. There are those sometimes who claim to be followers of Jesus and who over time prove that they're not followers of Jesus. And our first message, we dealt with the idea of Judas. And we just asked the question, what do you do with Judas? How do you explain somebody who continues with Jesus for uh, three years and then renounces the faith? Uh, do you explain that by saying, oh, he had salvation and then he lost his salvation? Uh, is that what we do with that? How, what do we do with Judas? And so by looking at Judas, we kind of painted a profile of a false convert. And we said sometimes uh, false converts... Uh, for a time, can actually be indistinguishable from the genuine. We said that sometimes false converts are those who have had immense spiritual privilege. We said that false converts sometimes have even served in ministry. Sometimes false converts have been beneficiaries of intimate Christian fellowship. Sometimes false converts have had a strong reputation of trustworthiness as believers. You see, even Judas being the treasurer among all the disciples. Sometimes false converts even show some evidence of repentance. And then we saw that sometimes false converts continue that charade all the way to the final judgment. Uh, and some, Frank, will be surprised by. We see that in Matthew chapter 7. And so, although we've, many of us have experienced those who have kind of come alongside of us and said, I'm a believer too, continued for a time. Maybe they were here in the church. Maybe they seem to become integrated with the fellowship of the church. Although we've experienced that, we've been very careful over the last two sermons not to base any of this upon experience, but upon the Word of God. And what we've seen is that the Bible clearly predicts. The Bible clearly predicts that false converts will be among us. 
And it's important for us to recognize that because when people defect from the faith and turn their backs upon Jesus, it's going to be easy to allow our emotions to begin to drive our theology instead of Scripture. It's hard for us to conceive that someone who seems so genuine for a time could then turn from the faith, that they could actually be an imposter. Consequently, we're tempted to allow our emotions to form our theology instead of Scripture. The Scriptures, however, are clear. False converts continuing for a time, deceiving others. They were present in the first century. Right there in Jesus' inner circle, uh, Paul experienced it, others experienced it, and they're present today. And so there's no need to be confused by this. No need to be confused by it. We should mourn when that occurs, but we should never be tempted to rethink our understanding of salvation or our understanding of discipleship in order to explain how some can continue for a time and then defect. By understanding that the Bible predicts such uh, false converts will be protected against the temptation to form our own biblical ways of explaining it, So we said this, we said, for instance, there's two potential ways to explain the person who continues for a time and then doesn't follow Jesus. One, we can say they were saved and then lost their salvation. They were genuine believers, but then they lost their salvation. Or we could say they were genuine believers and they're still genuine believers, even though they show no fruit or evidence of salvation. And some people do make that category as well. You might have heard the term of a carnal Christian, for instance. In both instances, those... Uh, are unbiblical understandings of salvation and discipleship. And those just won't do. And so we cannot base uh, or we cannot explain false converts uh, in this way. Uh, We must just simply embrace what the Bible teaches. And so that's been our attempt to see what the Bible teaches. So last week, we began to address that first error, the idea that someone who comes for a time, continues in the faith, by all outward appearances, seems to be a genuine believer, uh, maybe they had salvation and lost it. So we addressed that. And we looked at John 17. We could have went to a lot of places, but we looked at John 17 with Jesus' prayer to the Father. And what did we learn? We learned that genuine believers are kept in the faith by the power of God the Father. Kept in the faith by the power of God the Father. We learned that genuine believers are kept in the faith by the intercession of God the Son. And we saw that genuine believers are kept in the faith by the sanctification of God the Spirit. And so Father, Son, and Spirit are all working together, actively sustaining the faith of believers. And so what do we learn? You heard the phrase, once saved, always saved? Once saved, always saved. Yeah, true. But what we understand is that God uses means to sustain that persevering faith. And so the means of the intercession of the Son, the means of the sanctifying work of the, of the Spirit through the Word, God is using those means to sustain our faith. And so once saved, always saved, yes, but don't in any way think that this is just, okay, once and done, there you are, you pray to prayer, you're in, and that's it. No, the Son is interceding for you continually that your faith would not fail. The Holy Spirit then is implementing or applying the prayer of the Son through the sanctification of the Word and through the means of grace. And so you are secure in the faith because Christ is actively working on your behalf and the Holy Spirit is actively working on your behalf. So God uses means. So last week we ended there. We said that God sustains our faith through the sanctifying work of the Word and the Spirit. And that again came directly from the prayer of Jesus. It's at this point that that divine work of sustaining the genuine faith of believers becomes very practical because Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. And what do we say? 
The word is never applied to the life of a believer apart from the Holy Spirit. So that's where this becomes very practical. So behind the divine curtain, the Father, or I'm sorry, the Son is interceding to the Father. The Father is answering. The Father sends the Holy Spirit, who then sanctifies. But now we get to see the evidence of this because the Holy Spirit actually sanctifies through the Word. So this is where the rubber meets the road. This now becomes observable. So we can actually see evidence of the Son's prayer and evidence of the Spirit's work in the life of a genuine believer. So what does that look like? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. In what way can we actually see the answer of Christ's prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit? What are some of the evidences of Salvation. What are some of the tangible evidences of genuine salvation? Well, there is a book written in the New Testament to answer that exact question. And it's the book of 1 John. It's the book of 1 John. John has written, and he tells us exactly why he has written in 1 John 5.13. He tells us, I write these things to you who believe, that's the audience, those who believe, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Is this an evangelistic book? Well, it could be, but John's audience are those who believe. But he wants those who believe to know that they have eternal life. In other words, he wants them to know that they have assurance. This is a book which gives us assurance of our own salvation. Interesting. So we're going to look in 1 John, and we're going to see what John gives us that he intends to give us an assurance that we have eternal life. This is going to help us to answer that second common error that we fall into when we see those who defect from the faith. The first one was, oh, they had salvation, they lost it. Well, that's wrong. The Bible doesn't support that at all. The second one is, oh, they're still saved, even though there's no evidence or no fruit. Well, that's wrong, and the Bible doesn't support that either. And we're going to see that through the book of 1 John. So, Written so that believers can have an assurance of their salvation. What's written here is a profile of a genuine believer, as he or she is progressively sanctified by the Holy Spirit through the working of the Word. We have seven points. We're going to touch on them each quite briefly. Uh, And let me just give a little caveat here. Understand that these seven things we're going to mention, nobody possesses imperfection. Okay? Uh, part of being sanctified by the Spirit through the Word, that is a progressive sanctification. And we're all going to falter and fail upon that pathway, right? And so understand that no one here is perfect, and you're not to assume perfection here. Uh, otherwise, we'll be discouraged. John's point here is not to cause us doubt, is to cause us assurance, right? So keep that in mind. So, Look again at John's purpose in writing his letter. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. John says, That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's saying, I am an eyewitness. The other apostles are eyewitnesses. I am about to write to you about what I have seen, what I have observed, concerning what? The word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Saying, I am in a unique position as an eyewitness, along with the other apostles, to write to you concerning eternal life. How you can obtain eternal life, and how you can know that you have eternal life. So, like, sit up and listen, because I'm an eyewitness, and I can share this with you. 
John says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So there's a purpose statement, John being in that unique position to share this. Now notice in verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. Now, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John is going to talk about those who continue in the faith for a time, but then defect from the faith, turn their backs upon Jesus and renounce their faith. He says in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued, right? One of the signs of salvation, evidence, is this continuation. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Okay, well, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, he's really dealing with the other side of that. I want you to know that you have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. I want you to know that you're in. I want you to know that you're part of the church. I want you to know that you are a genuine believer and that you're not one of those who would go out proving that they were never of us. Saying everything that I'm proclaiming as an eyewitness is for the purpose that my readers might too have that fellowship. So that's our hope this morning too. Again, we don't want to cause genuine believers to doubt their salvation, but we do want to maybe encourage false converts to do some self-examination so that they can be genuinely saved. As Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? That's important to us because uh, Paul's using that word test, and we might be uncomfortable with that. But there it is. It's biblical. Examine yourself. Put yourself to the test. Well, if you're going to put yourself to the test, you've got to have some measuring rod by which you can uh, establish the test. Well, that's what First John's going to do for us. And so we're going to examine ourselves, put ourselves to the test. So we're going to use that word test. It's a biblical word. We're going to use it, and we're going to see seven tests in the book of 1 John. First thing we're going to see is that John offers to us as a test the conviction test. The conviction test. Look in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he in the the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I really relate to John here because this is, this is what it's like to preach sometimes, to try to strike a balance. This is what John's doing here, saying, genuine believers do not walk in darkness, they do not continue in sin, but if we say we have no sin, uh, we're deceiving ourselves. But we shouldn't continue in sin, but if we say that we don't have any sin, and you understand the balance, and uh, trying to use a little bit of nuance there to try to get the truth out. Well, we see this here from John. What he's saying is that someone cannot claim to be part of the fellowship of genuine believers, sharing in the eternal life of the Father and the Son if his life reveals an ongoing habitual pattern of unconfessed sin. Well, that's a test. Does your sin grieve you? 
Does your sin grieve you? That is, are you troubled by your propensity to sin? Are you like Paul in Romans chapter 7, like we said last week, who just when he thinks about how he wants to do what's right and he ends up not doing what's right and he cries out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Like, is that your experience? Do you feel personal conviction when you know you have violated God's holiness by disobeying him? When you sin, are you driven to confess that sin and to ensure that you have unbroken fellowship with God? Is that your experience or can you sin with impunity? You have a lifestyle of sin, and you know it, but you just don't seem to care. Well, that reveals a lack of eternal life. Now, it's important at this point to say we're not just talking about worldly grief, that only only grieving over the consequences of our sin. What we're talking about here is godly grief, godly grief that mourns over our lack of holiness, that laments our disobedience towards the God who loves us, laments our disobedience towards a God who loves us and it longs for a day when we can worship him in purity, unfettered by our sin. That's genuine repentance. When you do sin, do you confess that sin? Do you confess and repent? Do you then rejoice that you're forgiven? Do you kind of bask in the merciful love of God that he's shown you through Jesus Christ? Is that your experience? You say, well, yeah, I do feel bad about my sin and I'm going to give you a warning here. This is just the first of seven. Don't stay here. Don't continue on thinking, oh, I know I'm a believer because sometimes I feel guilty over the bad things I do. Well, understand, this is just, I mean, this is like base level, okay? This is baseline. We're going to build six more on top of this. You don't want to stay here. You don't want the assurance of your salvation to be based upon whether or not you feel guilty about sin alone. Because we can feel guilty for all kinds of reasons. Just shame. I mean, you're raised a certain way. Your parents instilled a certain conscience in you. Maybe society frowns upon the things that you do. Well, not anymore. Society doesn't really frown upon any sin, does it? Celebrates it, promotes it, uh, imposes it even. Uh, But there's all kinds of reasons why your conscience might bother you that fall short of genuine salvation. So we're not going to stay here, but this is still an important test. Uh, How do you feel about your sin when you sin? Lord, I violated your holiness. Forgive me. I recognize that I'm a sinner. Uh, And then what do we do? We run to Christ. We run to Jesus. We thank you for the mercy that I have in Jesus. That's how a genuine believer deals with sin. So that's a conviction test, number one. I said we're going to go quick. Number two is the submission test. The submission test. Look in 1 John 2, verse 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Well, that just supports the fact that John is writing this for a purpose, right? He wants us to know that we've come to know God through Christ. And here's one way that we know. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. John is so direct. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so immediately we begin to build. We started with repentance, yes, but we're going to build upon that from repentance to active obedience. What John is saying is that genuine believers obey the commands of Jesus. Such obedience, according to John, is evidence of the love of God. Now, what does that remind you of, by the way? The Great Commission? 
Jesus says, all power is given unto me in heaven and to earth, and in earth. Go, therefore, and what? Teach. You're proclaiming the gospel. You're making converts. And he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Right? Because genuine believers continue in obedience to Christ's commands. And he says that this is evidence that the love of God is present in one's life, which is consistent with what Jesus said in John 14, 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You can't claim to love Jesus and not obey Jesus, right? And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So John says, keep his word. Keep his commandments. What is that? This is to have a pervasive spirit of watchfulness. The genuine believer is careful to obey. He or she has a life marked by obedience. Notice here that John pits words against actions. He says that whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. It's not enough to say. It's not enough just to utter the words. And so he is pitting words against actions. And so some people have, get uncomfortable when we start talking about evidence of salvation. Well, you're preaching work salvation. Nothing further could be further from the truth. We just talk about the grace of God uh, in our catechism today. It's only by grace. However, that grace uh, produces a faith which does work. And so John is very, very blatant and clear. Words are not enough. Words must lead to action. Why? Because the confession that leads to eternal life produces obedience. James said similarly in James 1, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so self-deception there, just to talk the talk but not walk the walk. So now... Uh, James and John say it is the one who keeps the word in whom the love of God is truly perfected. John says that in verse 5. Well, what does that mean? Well, commentators kind of disagree on that. What are we talking about? Are we talking about God's love for us or are we talking about our love for God? I think it's best to see that as it, this is our love for God uh, kind of being shown forth, being exemplified uh, through our obedience. Because that's consistent with what Jesus taught. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So in whose life will you best see a love for Jesus? It'll be in the life of the one who keeps the commandments of Jesus. So it makes all the sense in the world then to say whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. That is a love for God from that individual. So... Do you actively and regularly, as a pattern of life, submit to the Word of God as that which is authoritative and instructive? Do you submit to the Word of God by allowing it to guide and shape your attitude and your affections and your actions? Not for mere head knowledge, but so that our life can be transformed by the Spirit working through the Word. This could include personal reading. It could include the teaching that you hear. It could include the preaching that you receive. It could include the counsel you receive from other brothers or sisters. It could be even admonition that you receive from other brothers and sisters. Do you receive the word with meekness and allow it to change your life because you're submitted uh, to the word of God? So conviction test, submission test. Number three, 
We see the separation test. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing, uh, uh, passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So according to John, another mark of genuine salvation is a separation from the world. The world here is in reference to those aspects of human society which are governed by the powers of darkness. The godlessness, materialism, pride, conflict, immorality, idolatry, etc. Genuine believers are those who once walked in those things but no longer do. And so there's a marked change in the lives of believers. A change from their previous lifestyle and a distinction from the world. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says to that Gentile church who is surrounded by immorality, just like we are, like our culture is disgusting. I just saw some news this past week, so I'm not going to share with you because I couldn't share it in mixed company. Uh, but it has to do with, the, with government, it has to do with immorality, and uh, it's absolutely stunning that God would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah but allows us to continue and just be thankful for His mercy. And uh, let's use this opportunity to grow in the faith and to evangelize uh, because we are absolutely undeserving of his mercies. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then he says this, Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so there's a separation between light and darkness. Light and darkness cannot just by definition exist together. If there's light, there's no darkness. If there's darkness, there's no light. And so Paul is saying, don't walk like that anymore. You're children of light. You don't belong to that type of culture anymore. So don't be partners with them. The lives of genuine believers are marked by a change from darkness to light, from impurity to purity, from pride to humility, from materialism to contentment, from conflict to peacemaking, from idolatry to sincere worship. Consequently, we can't feel at home in this world, let alone love it. Furthermore, as the genuine believer grows in holiness, you understand what's going to happen? We no longer can participate in the things of the world, so there's a distinction there. And then the world returns the favor and says, well, we don't want you anyway, right? First uh, John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. This is so ironic because the world talks so much about tolerance. So much about tolerance. But the world is, in fact, wholly intolerant. Wholly intolerant of any who refuse to practice or participate in their godless immorality. The world's talk about tolerance is simply a way of protecting their right to continue in their unbridled passions and impurity. Toler toleration. Uh, but they're not tolerant at all. 
1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says, then, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There's a purifying effect to trials, isn't there? For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. He's saying, listen, you, 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 you did that. That's what you came out of. And not anymore. But then he says this. With respect to this they, who's they? Well, that's the world that's continuing on in those things. With respect, to the, with respect to this they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And that ought to be your experience and my experience as you've been saved. The Holy Spirit is working and produces real change. And people notice. Your former uh, companions notice, those you used to run with, the things that you used to do together. Now there's a marked change, and they notice. But what's the response? They're surprised, and then it says, they malign you. They malign you. That is, now you're on the receiving end of their disapproval. The world will tolerate absolutely anything except for a refusal to participate in their sin. They will malign you, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. They're, they're going to have their own reckoning. But in the meantime, we are not at home in this world. We're not at home in this world. And frankly, if we love the world, there's a problem. If the world loves us, well, there may be a problem as well, right? As followers of Jesus, we can no longer participate in the world's immorality. This doesn't mean we hate the world. It doesn't mean we hate those who do these things, but simply that we cannot participate. But even that's not enough. I'm sorry, even that is enough. Just a refusal to participate is enough to raise the ire of a culture which is greedy to practice every form of immorality. Like the culture is very creative, right? I mean, once we, once we open the door to this form of immorality and that kind of gets old hat, well, we're going to be inventive in the next form of immorality. And that's what we see all around us. And it's like almost like technology where it kind of advances exponentially. It's like once you open the door to this grotesque exercise of our depravity, uh, then getting tired of that happens very, very quickly. And uh, the uh, level of immorality seems to almost grow exponentially. We see it all around us. Jesus warned us that following him would lead to just this kind of conflict. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's to be expected. And so this is the mark of a genuine believer, a separation from the world. Do you still find yourself comfortable with the world? with the world's materialism and pride and conflict and impurity? Or have you found that there has been a sort of disconnect between your former lifestyle? And maybe you've experienced this type of conflict even in your relationships as you have become more, uh, had a greater desire for holiness and righteousness, and which has led to a natural separation. That's the separation test. How are we doing? One, two, three, four, five. We can do this. Okay. Participation, conviction, submission, separation. Number four, we're going to call it the anticipation test. The anticipation test. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Listen, the world not knowing us and the world kind of rejecting and becoming intolerant towards us, not really a big deal, small price to pay, considering what we are anticipating. We are anticipating full glorification at the return of Jesus Christ. This is the hope of every genuine believer. Genuine believers, genuine followers of Jesus live with an eternal perspective. That is, the way we live in this life is fundamentally transformed by what we're anticipating in the next life. When he comes, we'll be like him, John says. That speaks of what the Bible calls glorification. The day's coming when we're going to shed these sin-prone frames and we will put on glorified bodies. This is the longing of everyone who genuinely desires holiness but is frequently grieved by their own sin. You say, I look forward to that day, right? No longer am I going to have to cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death. We're going to be able to say, thank you for delivering me from the body of this death. Uh, We can worship God unhindered by sin. So how does this anticipation... Christ is going to return. We learned about this in equip class, right? The kingdoms of this world are going to give way to Christ's eternal kingdom. We saw that. Uh, How should that then affect our here and now? Well, it changes everything, right? I mean, how we view money, how we view relationships, how we view sin. Uh, Everything is affected uh, living in the shadow of the looming return of Jesus Christ. But look what John says in verse 3 of 1 John 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even uh, as he is pure. He's saying this has an immediate effect. Those who are anticipating Christ's return in our glorification and are waiting for deliverance from sin and mortality, prepare for that day by what? Purifying yourself now. I want to be found blameless before him at his coming. So that's going to affect the way that I live here. Peter makes the same connection, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since there's a coming judgment, God's going to recreate, He's going to make a new creation. Since that's the case, what sort of people ought we to be? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see how that eternal perspective and that anticipation then leads to practical changes. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Genuine believers have not settled down in this world. They're not content here. They're looking forward to the return of Christ. And that has a marked, uh, makes a marked change or difference in their lives, seeking to be found before him without spot or blemish and being at peace. Paul wrote to the Colossians, Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what's the consequence? What's the practical application? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is a life absolutely fundamentally transformed by an anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Participation, conviction, submission, separation, anticipation, and this kind of a catch-all, number five, we're going to call it the sanctification test. The sanctification test. Increasing holiness, increasing righteousness, increasing Christ-likeness. 1 John 3, verse 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so what John is saying, this is how you know. Who belongs to God, who doesn't belong to God? This is how you know. The one who belongs to God does not continue sinning, but instead what? Practices righteousness. Practices righteousness. So I call this a sanctification test because a genuine believer uh, simultaneously has a decreasing frequency of sin or certainly a lack of uh, contentment or acceptance of their own sin and an increasing righteousness, becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, he says that genuine believers do not keep on or practice sin. What he's saying here, he's talking about a habitual sin. Continuing habitual sin with no genuine repentance. There's no evidence that this one is practicing righteousness. That's the overall pattern of their life. That's not the same as perfection. Sinning and even sinning frequently is not the same as making a habitual practice of sin. The mark of uh, the Holy Spirit working in us ensures that that's going to be the case, that we're not going to have an ongoing, unrepentant, unconfessed pattern of sin in our lives. We see that in verse 9. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I mean, that's the Holy Spirit in us. Makes us born again. His seed dwells in us, is always there, and therefore keeps us from going down that road of just continuing and continuing and continuing in sin without repentance and without coming back to the faith. So the Holy Spirit sees to it that genuine believers do not return to a lifestyle of sin. And then verse 10 makes it abundantly clear and again validates our approach here, looking at 1 John as a series of tests, because he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And so we're not just talking about the negative, stop sinning. We're talking about going on to righteousness. That's sanctification. Not perfection, but a progressive growth into Christ's likeness. Participation, conviction, submission, separation, anticipation, sanctification. Number six, we're going to call it the affection test. The affection test. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. 
we know, this is a test, we know, this is how you know, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. According to John, a sure sign of genuine salvation, that we pass from death into life, is that we have a love for our fellow brothers. Read, brothers and sisters. Remember that we started all this kind of in the introduction when John said, I'm writing all of this. I want my readers to come to know that they have fellowship with God and with Christ and with us, he said. I want my readers to know that they have fellowship with every other believer. Some of the evidence of that fellowship is an affection for every other believer. Not just an affection for Christ, but an affection for all those who love Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And he says that those who are genuine don't hate their brother. And you would hope that we don't have to ask this question. But how's your life going when it comes to your relationship with fellow believers? Their hatred? Bitterness, resentment being harbored in your heart towards fellow believers, that's a red flag, isn't it? John says that genuine believers, uh, those who have passed out of death into life, uh, cannot hate their brothers, but instead love. Do you love fellow Christians? And not just those that we would be naturally drawn to because of personality and commonalities, but those uh, that outside of salvation, we might actually avoid. <laughs> Those that we would, it's really unlikely that we'd forge a friendship with them. But we find that through salvation, we're making connections that we ordinarily would not have made. I'm thankful that we can actually see this at Calvary Baptist Church, right? Uh, we see individuals crossing racial ba- barriers. We see individuals crossing demographic, demographic barriers. We see uh, older individuals developing friendships with younger individuals and so on. And we see that happen as a fellowship, which is wonderful. But that's just the evidence of the grace of God. That's the evidence of genuine salvation. It's this kind of supernatural love uncommon to the world that really ought to set every church apart. And notice that John, again, won't allow talk about such love to remain in the abstract only because he says there in verse 17, if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so it's not just about what we say, it's about what we do. So he doesn't allow the love. Oh yeah, I love you, right? I love you in Christ. Have you heard that before? Uh, you don't really like someone. So you say, oh, I love you as a brother in Christ. That's a way of saying, I don't really love you, and I don't really care for you. You kind of irritate me and annoy you, annoy me, and I don't want to be around you, but I do love you in Jesus. John doesn't allow us to do that. He says, don't love in word only, but indeed, that love will be seen in a willingness to sacrifice. And then he says that, you know, to, to lay down your lives for the brothers. That's the idea. And again, I just have to commend Calvary Baptist Church because I've seen this. I've seen when a need has been put out there from somebody you don't really know very well, but you see that they're a brother or sister in Christ, and so you give and you sacrifice. I've seen it. We're thankful for that. But that must continue. That's an evidence of genuine salvation. 
This, frankly, is what Jesus clearly assumed would be true of those who follow him. He assumed that uh, our love for one another would be tangible, that it would be observable, because he said in John 13, 35, that by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. What's the assumption there? That even those out there will be able to see and observe in some tangible way that we love one another. They're not penetrating, gazing into our hearts and seeing our emotions. They're seeing tangible expressions of our love, which is uncommon to the culture. So that's the affection test. And lastly, we saw the conviction test, the submission test, separation, anticipation, sanctification, affection. And last of all, we're just going to call it the continuation test. The continuation test. First John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. John is saying that genuine believers confess that Jesus has come from God. Genuine believers confess that Jesus is the Son of God, sent from the Father, and the only source of eternal life. What's remarkable what John is saying here, he's saying this is what genuine believers confess, and you see the parallels to John 17. When Jesus prays to the Father and says, Father, I've accomplished all that you give me to do. I've given them your name, and now they believe that everything that I have is from you. They believe that you sent me, right? That was what his purpose was, to instill that in his disciples. So John now is writing and saying, this is the evidence of a genuine believer. They confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. They confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he's from God. Then John says in 1 John 4, 6, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is how you know. So what? Genuine believers continue on with the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, sent from the Father, the only source of eternal life, and go on to hold to the teaching of the apostles. That's what John says. They hear us. Genuine believers continue with the confession. Genuine believers continue uh, in the apostolic doctrine. Uh, Do you have friends that are Jehovah's Witnesses? Not genuine believers. They are not confessing Christ as the Son of God, uh, as the Bible uh, portrays Him. Do you have friends who are Mormons? Not Christians. They have an errant Christology, along with a lot of other errors. Uh, if one deviates from sound theology, confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, sent by the Father in the flesh, the only source of eternal life, and then continuing in the apostolic doctrine, John is saying that's evidence that they're not genuine believers, if they're not continuing in those things. 1 John chapter 2, again, we're going to say, see the passage where John talks about those who defect, it says, children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. 
This is why we call it the continuation test. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He's saying, you want to know that you have eternal life? You want to know that you're in the faith? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Continue. Continue in sound doctrine. Continue in your confession of Christ. Continue in the apostolic doctrine. This is a continuation test. Genuine believers continue in the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. No claim of salvation can stand if we have errant views of the person of Jesus or reject apostolic doctrine. Genuine believers remain faithful to sound theology. So, in conclusion, when we consider those who once claimed to be believers and who are no longer confessing Christ or are showing no evidence of genuine salvation through their lifestyle, we want to avoid a couple errors. Number one, we're not in any way going to suggest that one can be genuinely saved and then lose that salvation uh, it makes no sense biblically whatsoever. Romans chapter 8 says that those who are foreknown by God and predestined and called and justified are also glorified. And so all those who are foreknown are all those who will be glorified and no, nobody's lost there in the middle. Okay, Nobody gets part of salvation, but the whole package of salvation is foreknowledge all the way to glorification and there's no other type of salvation known in Scripture. And so uh, we understand that one cannot be genuinely saved and then lose their salvation. But then the other error, equally erroneous, is the idea that someone can be genuinely saved but then show no evidence of salvation. Biblically, we learn that genuine believers cannot lose their salvation and that the genuineness of their salvation will be proven over time. The salvation that we receive through Jesus Christ is a salvation accompanied by a persevering faith. Understand this. When you were saved, you did not simply receive eternal life. Okay, you're going to be in heaven, right? And let's get this out of our mind that, oh, I got saved, and I'm going to go float up in heaven, right, in the clouds and, and so on. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a new creation, and it's tangible. It is physical. It's on this earth, and it's an eternal kingdom governed by Jesus Christ, right? That's the inheritance. And uh, with that salvation came a faith which perseveres. There's no other type of salvation. Biblical salvation is a salvation which gives you, yes, an entrance into the kingdom, but also in this life, a persevering faith. No other type of salvation known in Scripture except that which is accompanied by a persevering faith which God sustains through means, right? Through the interceding work of Jesus Christ, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which will be seen then what through our own diligent effort and utilization of the means. That's biblical salvation. What does that look like then, practically? A persistent sensitivity to one's own sin, which leads to sincere repentance, the conviction test. A humble submission to the Word of God with a desire to obey the commands of Jesus, the submission test. A growing dissatisfaction with this world and its sinfulness and a refusal to participate in it, the separation test. 
a pervasive spirit of anticipation which longs for the return of Jesus and spills over, affecting our attitudes and our affections and our actions, the anticipation test. A progressive growing into Christ-likeness which looks like an ever-increasing righteousness and not continuing in a pattern of sin, the sanctification test. A love for fellow believers which is foreign to the culture and stands as a clear testimony that we have been changed by Jesus, it's the affection test. A confession that Jesus is the Son of God sent by the Father and the only source of eternal life and a faithful continuance in the apostolic doctrine, that's a continuation test. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and that you've given us such practical instruction. I thank you for John. Lord, you inspired him to write in such a clear and direct way. And it uh, just reminds us that there's no obscurity here. There's no gray area. Either one is uh, a child of light or a child of darkness. Uh, whether one is, one is either saved or unsaved. And we just thank you that there's clear evidence. Lord, we recognize this morning that we are imperfect. And so although you've given us these tests where we can kind of look at our own lives and do self-examination, uh, our judgment will be incomplete. Our judgment uh, cannot be comprehensive because we're not going to see these things in perfection. We all falter. We all stumble. And uh, we're going to see that as we think about each of these tests. Uh, we may struggle with uh, sin still, and we struggle with loving our brothers and... Um, there's times where we continue and it seems that conviction's not as strong as it ought to be. And there's times where we neglect the Word of God. And uh, we recognize that we're frail. And uh, so we want to be careful when we apply these tests that we uh, don't aim for, uh, don't look for perfection. Uh, nevertheless, Lord, help us to recognize that salvation does bring change. And we ought to be able to see evidence, fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, so help us. And then... Uh, as you think about John writing this um, to those who have eternal life so that they may know, we recognize that you did not inspire him to write this book so that we would apply to other people, but so that we would apply it to ourselves. And so help us first and foremost to look to, to our own hearts. Um, help us not to use this to judge others, but to judge ourselves. So I pray you'd help us this morning. There are those uh, who are genuine believers as they think about these tests and as they see evidence in their lives to one degree or another, I pray you just give them a wonderful assurance of their salvation. Uh, not perfection at all, but uh, the evidence is mount up as we look at these seven things and uh, provides for us an assurance that the Holy Spirit is present because these things can't be explained by our own flesh. Uh, we wouldn't be pursuing these things at all except by your Spirit. So give a wonderful assurance to individuals as they look at their own lives and see these things present. And then, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who's self-deceived, unbeliever, uh, continuing or uh, claiming to be a believer, I pray you'd expose that in their own hearts, help them to see that their faith is not genuine, and uh, for the purpose of them coming to Jesus Christ in sincerity, I pray that some would be saved. And then lastly, Lord, we just pray for those this morning who are not Christians at all. They came as non-Christians, they know they're not believers, but maybe you've worked in their heart, uh, showing them their need for Jesus. Help them to confess Christ as your Son, sent by you, affirmed by you as your Son, and as the only source of eternal life. Uh, so I pray that these will repent of their sin and embrace Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And then we pray that they go on to show a life of wonderful evidence of genuine salvation. 
Lord, we thank you for this. And again, we just confess that all of this is by your grace. Uh, It's the product of your Holy Spirit. And none of it is anything that we can take credit for. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.